Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 137th episode of the Truth Island podcast. In school, we are often forced to take a number of subjects such as mathematics, science, history, and even physical education. We are told that these disciplines are of far greater use of our time than what we might otherwise accomplish sitting at home left to our own devices. While there is definitely a shade of truth in this, especially when dealing with younger and underdeveloped minds, a question that very few can answer is, why are we drawn to the things that we are drawn to? For example, why is one child drawn to mathematics, another to history, some towards athletics, music, and a rarity of other hobbies and fascinations that are more likely to be found outside the classroom? Countless child-rearing books can be categorized into one of two camps. The first sees the parent as noble custodians entrusted with the task of cultivating interests and hobbies that are suitable in nature and will one day produce children that are fully prepared to succeed in the outside world. The second camp of literature suggests that parental guidance is negligible and that children are the best deciders of their own hobbies and curiosities. Regardless of which style of parenting parents choose to embrace as a child gets older, there are still countless forces which tug and pull for their attention. The US has spent millions of dollars, for example, in getting children interested in careers that reside within the STEM professions. The leading thought is that if children are merely exposed to the workings of an astronaut or biologist, they too will somehow develop an affinity for these in-demand careers. However, the two questions that no one ever seems to ask is why is it that different people become curious about different things? And secondly, is it ever possible to instill curiosity into someone that is not already curious? Joining to spark my curiosity, I am once again accompanied by Alexander. Alex, are you feeling curious about this topic? Surprisingly, this isn't really a topic that's taught in school. <laughs> You know, the whole the whole thinking behind thinking isn't taught in school, which is hilarious, right? Because if you were to look at thinking as a vehicle, it's the one thing we drive for the longest period of time and have no requirement for a license to use. It's just natural. It's our internal vehicle. And so humanity's entire span of history, their entire developmental process begins at being curious and driving the pursuit of knowledge and the expression of self and all these discoveries that we're very privileged to be able to explore. Some people more privileged than others, but at the end of the day, there is an insatiable curiosity embedded in the DNA of every single bipedal human being, as opposed yep. to like what, like quadruped, <laughs> four, four <laughs> legs. I don't know why I said bipedal, it just sounded more scientific. But, yeah, I don't know. know. I don't know. What my, uh, I don't know what a dog or cat is curious about, other than being fed every every night. Um, so this smells. <laughs> they, they like smells. I mean, really, they are. They're intensely curious about smells so much that they put their face in your crotch and sniff their own poop. So <laughs> you know. You know, th th this conversation reminds me of another conversation I had with another biped, uh, a screenwriter, nice. <laughs> a screenwriter about six months ago. <laughs> And he said something really interesting to me, and I actually disagreed with him at the time, but now, now I'm actually starting to come around and maybe see what he was saying. He mm. said to me 
that he never learned anything in school. He said that I was always, I was a very stubborn young man and I was always just curious in whatever it is that I was curious about. That was his, mm-hmm. that's his thing. And, you know, at being a teacher myself and all this other stuff, I was like, well, well, hold on now. Like if, if you were never exposed to Rome, if you were never exposed to right. history, if you were never exposed to science, you wouldn't even know where to sniff, right? Like going back to our dog mm-hmm. here, right? right? And I, I, I was saying that like, Let's be honest, if we're if you and I were both 14 years, 14 years old or 13 or 12, whatever, and we were left to our own devices, all we would do is play video games. If we're we're just being really (laughs) honest here, all we would do if left to our own devices is just play video games endlessly. And a lot of kids will do that. So there is an argument to be made that although I may not have been naturally curious about history, school and, and there was a push or enough people pushed me in my life to be curious about something like that. Whereas if left to my own devices, I may never have developed that curiosity. How, so what, do, you, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Yeah. I would disagree that I would just play video games. Um, in fact, I can definitively say for a fact, there'd be a lot of different rabbit holes I would run down but they all come back into chasing a curiosity, including the occasional video game. If the video game doesn't excite my mind, if it is just a mindless process, I don't, I don't do it. I mean, my entire like video game focus would be maybe one or two games that have stuck with me over like 12, 15 years. You know, like I don't really deviate outside of that. Um, a, because I, I don't know, maybe I just outgrew it more than I thought. And B, it's just, it doesn't, it's not a puzzle. And so this is kind of what we're talking about. This is the beauty of video games in terms of chasing something you don't know to try to critical use critical thinking, strategy, um, you know, management principles in order to basically work that part of your brain. I mean, that, that's 100% a real thing that can happen. It's no different than a Sudoku puzzle, except there's a 10x in terms of its dimensionality. Older people won't understand that, but we do. In terms of chasing down curiosities, I think it really comes down to an essential drive, which is a human being feeling some sort of dominance over their material world. And I know the word dominance is going to really itch some people in the wrong way, but hear me out. Humanity is in a competitive model. I don't care what you say. If you're in the arts or if you're in sports, you're still in a competitive model. You're competing with yourself in the arts but you're competing with others in sports. You're still competing. You're driving, you're driving your motivation to overcome challenges, whether it's your internal fear of being vulnerable on stage or your ability to sew in real life actions in your, in your, in your lyrics. Or if you're looking to just beat up somebody in a cage, potentially maybe Floyd Mayweather this weekend, <laughs> who, who knows? You're still driving to compete. And so what leads us there? I think two things. I think we have an idea of something. And then when we connect that idea with um, actually applying it in the first place, then we discover that the intersection between what we thought it was and what we can do is where our hobbies really take root. And that's when we stick with something. So we're curious to discover. We're kind of like using echolocation to get a vague idea of what's our surroundings. And then we determine the best way to leverage that for everyday world. Yeah. I, I, I think you're, you're, you're right about this. And I, I, I give you a lot more credit than me. Like I definitely would have been one of those slacker kids that just fell into the video game. I don't know what, like, I I don't know what rabbit holes I would have found myself into, but I have a feeling they may not necessarily have been 
the most productive. I, I might I might not be giving myself enough credit, but I definitely wasted a lot of time when I was younger and perhaps waste a lot of time even now. So I do see that and there's definitely a pull. However, what we are looking for in this world is I think we're looking for exposure, right? Because you can't, how, how does one know to pursue something which they don't know exists? And, you know, I'll give you one travesty that I noticed with our education system. You know, if you go to school, there's a lot of basketball programs, a lot of um, volleyball, you know, things of that sort. However, I rarely see boxing or martial arts being offered by like a public school, mm. right? In order to do that, you have to have parents that have at least some kind of money and they're able to fork over, you know, $125 a month for you to do stuff like that. And that's, that's where I think exposure really plays some, some type of role in this, because it's like, how would I know that I might like martial arts unless you have some figure in your life who's like, hey, you're going to try this for a few months. If you don't like it, okay, you can drop out, but I'm going to kind of force you to stop doing whatever hobby it is that you think is important, like put down this controller and do that. How, how do you feel about that? That like, yes, it's, we're ultimately the drivers of, of what we choose to be interested in, but sometimes in life, especially when we're younger, we do need other people that can expose you to things that you may not know that you will like. I think it's a less linear, like an operational timeline, if that makes sense, right? It's really just a human being that's trying a bunch of different things is more likely to try new things as opposed to one person being brought by an external force to different things to try, right? I think it's a personality trait. It's no different than being outgoing, right? There is an expression of self to be more outgoing with new experiences. And so maybe you try 50 other things completely unrelated to you learning Portuguese, but you know you like learning and maybe the communication experience that you've had meeting these new people in say your finger painting class or right your wine and cheese tasting has brought you to appreciate the purpose of language and then you find a new passion about it. I don't think it's a straight line right it's I don't think there's a correlation between a parent dragging a, a, a child to specific places that lock them in into that specific uh, curiosity of learning. I well, think it's me, beyond that. Let me ask you this question. Sometimes I see these like child prodigies and what are these child prodigies always known for doing? Well, playing the violin, right? Like we always see okay. them like, it's like the most cliche thing in the world. They're playing the violin. And I look at these kids and I'm like, damn, those kids have freaking drive, right? To learn that violin. But then I also say to myself, well, you gotta have had parents that introduced you to the violin, you know? Like <laughs> I, I do, I do kind of see both sides of that. Again, it's kudos to the yeah. kid for sticking with it, but you gotta have had parents that were like, I I'm gonna take you to a, uh, to a conservatory and, and learn how to play this thing. And I'm gonna force you to practice on the weekends when you, when you don't want to. For sure, but then there's, there's savants on the other angle. Now, something like a violin or piano the story for that is usually one person who has nothing else in the world, who has a singular focus, kind of like a, you know, a Wusashi wore five rings focus onto something. But there's other examples like business owners who've never ran businesses before. I mean, take Mark Cuban, guy drops out of college, opens his own bar on his campus, and then lo and behold, just starts killing it in the business game. And I know you can say he had little businesses growing up, but they didn't really count, right? They were like kid businesses. His first one was that bar restaurant on his college campus where everyone went to go. And he was making so much money. He was like, why do I need college? No one taught him that. 
but all of the skills throughout his entire life basically led to the tip of the spear that he used to, you know, break ground in that exact location. And so, you know, if we're looking at it in terms of the, the, the song of ice and fire for experience and how people go down into it, right. The saga of how people go down as successful, it's so indirect. There's really no set formula. It just kind of happens. And I think the best way to describe that is preparation meets opportunity. And the drive for curiosity is what brings us to try in those areas in the first place. And, you know, there's absolutely zero promise that it's going to work. Like, for example, if you're the third best pianist in Russia, you're useless, right? If you're the fourth best chess player, you failed. So what happened with them? You don't think their entire lives, right? But it's like, you know, because we can cherry pick successes. It's kind of like, how are they so freakish? This like weird sewing together of these Frankenstein parts and just coincidences throughout their life that happen to put them in the perfect place to be number one. I, I like what you're saying. And, and I like the example you just used with Mark Cuban that like, I, I guarantee you that there was no, there was probably no like business class that just was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in starting my career. Let me attend the seminar. Like a lot of these entrepreneurs are not like seminar people who are, you know, they, they just like, they're just like, screw it. Let me just go out into the wild west and, and make this stuff happen because I have an insatiable drive and I have an insatiable curiosity to make this thing happen. I don't need a professor. I don't need a seminar. I don't need uh, a fancy coursework in order to make that happen. And a lot of freaking, you know, I, I always compare this to like um, the Beatles or like a Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. for example, they never had like great music teachers. I never hear them speaking about, oh yeah. And then I went to the conservatory and they, they, they taught me how to really play the guitar. It's like, they just picked up a guitar and went absolutely crazy with it Wild, all right? day long. And even, you know, even the Beatles said when we first started practicing, people told us we sucked and they, and like, we could hardly get booked gigs in bars and run down, run down Liverpool bars or whatever. And it's like, that's an example of innate drive and innate curiosity, right? They weren't a part of some kind of prep school program. They just were like, screw it. I really want to do this. The implications of this though are incredible, but very dangerous because it almost tells us, it's like, well, what exactly is the point of any type of school? What is the point? Like, I think we have to go all, I think the only, I think the only sense that I'm thinking about is like, I'm starting to ask myself, what if my own education had ended in eighth grade? Okay. Let's just pretend this for a mm -hmm. second here. My own education ended in eighth grade and I had basic literacy. Let's just assume that I have basic literacy at that age. Is there anything that I can't do? Like what, what more yes. do I need beyond eighth grade? I have a basic understanding of history, a basic literacy. What, what, what more do I need? What, why do we need like five master's degrees to just get like an internship? You know, like if, if, yeah. if, if, if all you need is basic literacy and the ability to teach yourself. Such a good question. I think two things have to be described here. The difference between college and high school. Also, I think that I need to basically declare that I went to a very good public school. So I'm one of the lucky ones. So my experience of what high school can deliver on an educational level might be very different from the average person. So just know that I understand that. So first and foremost, the difference between high school and college. High school to me was the first time I was introduced to skepticism, uh, to hold skepticism throughout the indoctrination process of public school. It was the first time up until eighth grade, I consider myself being 
indoctrinated into the U.S. public, the public school system, right? Like how to think, how to structure my thinking, how was Western thinking, right? What history did we just happen to dance over, right? Oh, what an amazing time this period of American history was. Nothing bad happened. Don't look into it, right? Like all that kind of stuff. But coming into high school, I started having teachers that were looking at us in a mature way that had the capacity to withhold mature circumstances and handle the situation, right? Suicides, uh, you know, deaths, um, pregnancies, uh, you know, bullying, right? The final, the last expression of youth really just bursting through the seams and doing something great, right? Puberty, maturity, they had to handle all this thing while teaching you. So they had to take a different angle. They would call out bullshit, I think, more often. And it was only then that I started asking myself these questions. Do I really believe the war in Iraq was okay? What happened in Tulsa? How, how many of the founding fathers owned slaves? What was the reality of World War II? Did we win? How many people in comparison to dropping the atom bomb were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki compared to the number of Jews in camps? How many of those camps occurred before World War II, right? All of these kinds of questions that they don't teach you up to eighth grade. So without that, I would not have gone into college with an open mind in terms of you need to add a dimensionality towards information. And this is what drove my curiosity. This is what I want to define as the, the gateway for me between sticking with my public schooling to deciding to learn on my own. Mm -hmm. Let, let me ask you a, a, a question and, and maybe and take your time if you need to think about it. At what grade, if you had to choose a grade, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, imagine you took an imaginary grade and at that point, your education just completely severed and you were left mm -hmm. completely to your yeah. own devices. At what grade do you think your education could be severed and you could still become a successful person if you had to pick a grade? Senior year high school. Senior year of high school. Yeah, not no problem. I regret going to college. I actually regret going to college. Um, you know, I think it's a giant scam. I, I think, you know, sure, the experiences are um, all well and good. But you can get those experiences in another way. And the real fidelity of life experience in general is the capacity and the drive to work. The understanding of compromise and the ability to really be on your own. You don't get that in college as much. Some people do. I had help, right? Like I wasn't paying my college out of pocket. I had parents that helped me with a loan. There's a difference. So high school is definitely the time. I could have worked a summer job, traveled the United States and got more education in a 365 calendar year than I would have for a year in college. I wouldn't have been exposed to certain elements for sure. Absolutely. I get that. I get that. But we're talking about an ROI, not just the, the lowest bar of entry here. What do you pay in order to get these experiences? Public school, you didn't have that. You, you weren't paying tens of thousands of dollars a year. You weren't being scalped. So high school is definitely that time. You know, what, what you just said is, is actually quite, quite amazing. And it actually is like a, a theory that I've kind of fermented in my head, but it's the power of a high quality K through 12 education. And, and this is, this is what we're, we're missing here is that 
I think that education is too, is too damn long. Okay. It's too damn long. You get four years of college, then, you know, two years of grad school, whatever, you know, it's too damn long. Whereas mm. I have met people, Alexander, like I have met young, like I, I've been in the city before. I remember I was attending this meetup and there were these two kids that, you know, probably lived on the Upper East Side or some kind of posh area. And I could tell that they went to private like high schools and so forth. And they sounded way more polished, intelligent, articulate than people that I went to college with. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. The power of high quality of a high quality high school education that you can actually produce young people who are 17, 18 years old that sound much more articulate. It's just the way that they kind of interact with the world, the references that they can pull up, their knowledge of history, their knowledge of philosophy, their, their kind of stoic like calmness and demeanor rivals that of people that I went to college with, maybe even some people that I saw in grad school. And it just it just boggles my mind of like, now, now look, maybe those kids are exceptionally bright. And maybe if I went to their high school, there would be some dumbasses there. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're like, I'm sure of that. But this is where I, this is where I actually think we're getting it all wrong. It's like we're spending too long in school and not really learning anything. Whereas what you're telling me and what I've observed is that if you go to a really rigid or, or just critical thinking high school, you can definitely have enough skills to succeed in life. Because I, you know, if, to answer my own question, the question I just proposed to you, like when would I be able to fly off on my own? I can't imagine that happening at least maybe my third year of college, I would be able to, like, I feel like I needed at least two years to even know who the hell Nietzsche was. Like I, I didn't even know who the hell he was. So I feel like I needed at least two years to kind of just figure out some of that stuff that I never learned along the way. But it's a reappropriation of resources. Imagine if you spent this, you know, I don't know, $40,000 or more that you spend in loans on school, just in loans uh, as a down payment. You have a roof over your head, right? You have a roof over your head and you have opportunities. This is easy to say now because we have the internet. You and I, in our age, we came up with the internet. So the people before us would be like, absolutely not. That's absolutely ridiculous. You become a drug addict. And they're probably right. <laughs> they're probably right. Like if, you know, if people were just stuck in their own homes without any kind of external drive, I get that. I get that. But if we're talking about the expense of resources, it does not make sense. You can hire private tutors for that price mm. as opposed to going to school. I mean, you're paying rent for room and board for one location for it to happen. Now, Secondly, I want to say that schools K through 12 is more of a daycare than an actual typical, you know, Western place of learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Ancient Western society, like the library of Alexandria, you were free to go and leave and stay as long as you want. It was a personal honor to be taught by certain mentors and to spend as much time in a social colloquium capacity to absorb as much knowledge and to provide a skepticism approach towards it. You're able to argue uh, elements of this learning and raise questions freely without any sort of stigma. Whereas now you can barely ask questions and you can, you, you, there's too many legal loopholes for, for universities to be sued. And it's just, it's a mess, man. It's a mess. 
Well, let me let me let me give you like maybe where I was when I was a senior in high school, and then we can kind of compare where we were. So when I was a senior in high school, I had never heard of the names Socrates, Plato, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn, and never had even heard of these names. So let's just say I never went to college. How would I even know to hire a tutor to teach me about Plato if I've never even heard the name of it before? You know what I mean? So I don't now. How did I learn about Plato? Well, I learned it reading books. The professors didn't really teach me, but they dropped the name. So the only good things that the professors did was they at least dropped the name of, oh, there's a guy named Plato. They didn't really teach me much about Plato. I actually just went out and got the book myself and, and learned, learned myself what he had to say. So that's why I'm still a proponent of exposure. I don't think that anyone should have to pay a hundred grand to get that exposure. There's no reason why you should go through all of high school and never have heard the word Plato or the, the name Plato rather in your entire life. So I think that what we should be doing is exposing kids to as much as humanly possible. And then when they become 18, then they can naturally start kind of grap you know, kind of grappling onto what it is that they find meaningful. I a hundred percent agree. Now here's the reality. So that's our um, idealism, you know, poking its head out of the sand a little bit. But now we have to root it in reality. So we only have a set amount of hours and a set amount of approvable curriculum types, right? There's only a set amount of textbooks that have a set amount of pages. So we can't live until the internet, obviously, but I'm saying in our, 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 uh, our era, we're getting old. Um, so you have to really filter through. So what do you choose? You know, it's a really difficult question. I don't think they chose wisely. I mean, a classic example of what you're bringing up about excluding information. In China, they don't even know about the Tiananmen Square. They don't hear about Tiananmen Square until they're adults and they hear it in passing. Exactly. So how could you, how can you research something you don't even know exists? Well, that's the entire point that they don't put it in the first place. Yeah. So this is what I'm saying about indoctrination. This is exactly what they're doing. I mean, Let's put on our little evil people caps for a second and All say, right, let me if get you're my uh, metal tin foil here. Oh, there we go. Okay, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Less tin foil, more colonial. <laughs> All right. You know, so let's put on our, um, our, uh, you know, our powdered white wigs, you know, and our, our, our colonial Napoleonistic conquering imperialistic hats here for a second. Right. Maybe our crown of wreaths, so to speak, and determine what decree we want for our education process. I want to invest in my citizens to a point where they can be more easily controlled and enlightened. You want both. And I really do think Western society tries that because we're one of the few that actually tries to enlighten our people in a way, maybe not internally, right? But in terms of knowledge, the Western way, Eastern enlightenment is a whole different thing. But in terms of knowledge and history and mathematics and science, the Western way is leading the way to basically enlighten the human being in terms of knowledge. But I still need you to stay in line. I need you to believe the things that America stands for. I need you to agree when we hoist the flag that you pledge allegiance. There's got to be a little bit of that because I got to control, what, 150 million? Where are we at now? Something like that, right? Some insane number of people that we have to keep in line. Over Can you 350 imagine? million. Okay, 350 million. <laughs> You know how impossible it is to find like an auditorium in a high school that 100% of those people are like not trying to murder each other when, when a teacher <laughs> isn't talking? Like, how do you do 350 million? You do some effed up stuff like indoctrinating your mind in terms of a certain core beliefs. Right. Then comes the internet. 
and in comes the most prominent thinkers, the people who are the, 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 uh, you know, the, the negative to the positive, the yin to the yang of learning knowledge. And they are the most important people. And part of the reason why they're so important is because they're cut out, because they provide a secondary pathway to be a skeptic about a certain subject matter, to think from different angles and to develop a three-dimensional view on a situation instead of just fleshing out a linear path straight down, following the course, remaining in the fence and not asking yourself, man, there's a brave new world out there. What do I go do about it? Okay. I want to, you know, it's, it's getting, it's hard for us to envision because we have to go back to, let's just say we have to imagine, let's, let's use a fictional protagonist here. Let's say we have an 18 year old male who's of average intelligence, average curiosity. And, you know, that could look different for, for me and you, but let's just assume so, right? He turns 18 and he's got YouTube. He's got, it's, it's 2021. He's got the full internet. Everything is there. He's got Jordan Peterson podcast, everything that he could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he hasn't been exposed to the vast Western canon of thought, right? Like he mm-hmm. hasn't been exposed to like Francis Bacon. He hasn't been exposed right. to Plato and the Greeks and the Romans. He has no idea about any of that stuff. What stops that 18 year old from like watching telekinesis YouTube videos all day long saying, whoa, I'm learning telekinesis and stuff like that from actually listening to something that's going to benefit his life? Because that 18 year old doesn't have the the critical thinking or the maybe as the critical thinking but he doesn't have like the the broadness of knowledge to be like this telekinesis is just nonsense let me go ahead and actually invest my time in, in something that will be worthwhile you know what i mean and i know we're laughing at that 18 i'm like come on dude you're watching telekinesis 10 hours a day right. but if you don't actually have that foundation then you don't know like okay this is this is bullshit let me let me let me get off of this so true, right? What we're talking about is almost like establishing a mentorship through the sea of knowledge. There has to be some sort of structure. Where do the borders of our vessel end and where do the beginnings of the great ocean begin? There has to be this, this um, fragmented, you know, this, this, uh, this borderline form of thinking. And this is, this is the rigidity and the beauty of the structure of scientific thinking and the rise of rationalism is because it's actually more of a spiritual and philosophical practice as it is you know, just rooted in absolute fact. And this is part of where I think the age of rationalism has really started degrading itself, where they just assume everyone thinks science is real. They, you need to prove it. The whole point is that you earn the knowledge that you know science is real. It's not a God-given right. The whole point is that it's constantly tested and constantly challenged, even by other scientists, peer reviews, journals, papers, responses, different hypotheses, you know, testing. And then over time, it's reforging itself on the anvil of knowledge to formulate the strongest possible, strongest possible doctrine of truth towards that particular subject. So I would say that this is more a failure of schools forgetting to teach the scientific process of thinking and why it's useful. What's provable? What can I test? What's a constant and what's a variable? If you can't answer that in information, then you, sir, are just completely afloat with no vessel leading you to shore.
Okay, so I think I think that what we're establishing here is that you have your elementary school, you learn to read, middle school, high school, mid, middle school, I have no idea what the purpose is of that. But okay, let's, let's assume for a second that high school is really important. What we need to figure out what is the base of knowledge that every homo sapien or every human being needs so that then they can pursue their curiosities in an intelligent way. I think that's what we need to actually establish is that there needs to be a base, a foundation or a base of knowledge so that when every American turns 18, okay, fine, maybe you got left back a little bit, 1920, it's fine, it's roughly the same. What we need to create a foundation or a base of knowledge where you can then be curious about whatever it is, but you know how to write a paragraph, you know how to do basic math. So this way, and you can critically evaluate the content that you are receiving so you don't go on you know, believing QAnon or the most outlandish of conspiracy theories, right? Because again, a lot of people who are left to, the, to their devices, what do they start believing in? They start believing in QAnon and, and crazy ass um, conspiracy theories. So it's like, what is the foundation? What is the basis of knowledge that we could give every 18 year old? So this way, if they really wanna be interested in chemistry, they can go ahead and do that. If they wanna be a sports athlete, they can do it without being, without being dumb enough to be tricked into like all of these false rabbit holes and they can find themselves in real rabbit holes. It comes down to defining the process of thinking itself. I, um, I have a close family member who's struggling right now with uh, a lot of depression. And the advice that I gave him was to keep a journal and to think of your thoughts like links in a chain. You want to identify the beginning of your thought and the end of your thought and only focus on that link, on those links together so that you can write it down and record. I started here and I ended here. This is my thinking chain. And as you perfect reminding yourself the beginning and the end of your thinking process, you'll be able to identify almost the runoffs like a tributary off of a great river, the little streams that peel off the main line that take you down these rabbit holes. You're gonna be able to identify those frames of thinking and see the triggers between what made you start thinking and where it brought you in the end. And soon everything in between will have a lot of context. Understanding the structure of that thought is one of the most critical skills that we need to have. Is my brain powerful enough to supersede my, you know, chimpanzee body, right? Are you elevated, right? This is the whole point of higher learning, higher education. You're supposed to have a almost a celestial dominance over your material body and world to where you can say, oh, you know what? I feel I need this because. And that is really the change. And without that kind of structure, someone can go down the rabbit hole, right? Someone can go down a telekinesis video and think, oh my God, this is so real. Look, everyone here says it's real. <laughs> it's like, is it testable? So I, lo I love your answer, by the way. And it made me think of this. So to, to summarize what your answer is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, we need to have the skills to, to verify what we think to be true. So if, if we're watching a YouTube video, we have to have the skills to do further research and see if the contents of that YouTube video are indeed actually true. 100%. You have to focus on the structure. You have to focus on the supply chain. What are the logistics of thinking? 
How do you maximize the logistics of thinking? Where can you be compromised? Do you have a code of sealant to keep it from being corrupted, so to speak, right? Do you have a, um, a series of checks and balances to your thinking, right? Without having this kind of organization around it, your thoughts will take you so far. And please, I'm the master of this. If I can have a doctorate in anything, it's basically just my thoughts taking me aloof. You know, like if God forbid we ever get computer chips in our brains and people can actually see the recordings of what I think about <laughs> in random moments. Point being, you have to have the checks and balances so that you can pull yourself back into reality and say, wait, what are the primary resources of this thought? Why do they matter to me? How do I feel about them, right? You want to remove the objectivity from the situation and you want to look at it, I think, I think it's called the subjective matter, where you're looking at it real, eye to eye, not from your own biases and influences. The most important skill in the world, because that can be used in anything, business. If you have that compass, you can see, wow, this person's totally full of shit, not realistic in terms of his or her projections. I can't, this isn't an investable person. If you do it in the arts, you can say there's something ringing true about the way that they brought that thought into reality. There's, there's a current in there that we need to follow. There's an element of magic. It could be used in faith and spirit and basic conversation. Yes. One other thing that I think, and, and I actually, I'm not going to take credit for this. I actually discovered this. I was researching something along these lines in a Quora. Quora is a great website, by the way, like a lot of smart folk hang around there. And, you know, I think the question was like, what is the smartest thing to know or the most important thing to know? And this one guy wrote something and I'm going to, I'm going to say it in Latin, but my, I don't know Latin, so I'm going to say it wrong. And it's something along the lines of qui bono, and that translates to who benefits. And whenever you're given any form of information, telekinesis, aliens, whatever, always ask yourself that question, who is benefiting by me having this knowledge right now? Because anytime you, any, everything, every YouTube video, everything that you're watching is really sponsored content, even if it's not right. technically sponsored content, because right. that guy is teaching you about telekinesis because he wants to sell you telekinesis right. or he's trying to sell you something. And by far, that was like, he said, if you know those two words, right. Whether, and even though I can't say it in Latin, but if you just say to yourself, Who's benefiting? Who's benefiting from this? Who's benefiting from the, from me knowing this? Who's benefiting me? Why? Why? And I guess maybe another reiteration of that is why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me the things that you are telling me? Who's benefiting from me knowing this? And I, I think that that alone is a skill that every single person needs to be armed with. I like your answer a lot better. Far less complicated than my ramblings. Yeah. Think about who benefits. But if it, wasn't, really, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for what you just said, I would never have thought of that. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm taking all the credit for a couponum. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's number one. I think that's a good baseline, right? Like seriously, I think if we had to have a hierarchical structure of the top three rules of how to think, number one should be couponum, without a doubt. I think number two is how bonum, <laughs> right? How, like how... I don't know. Like, how do you think? I don't know. I can't speak Latin. <laughs> El pluribus nunc. You know, the only thing I know is on the back of dollar bills. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should take my take the time to educate myself on Latin. Maybe I'll go watch Barbarians again and get a few extra phrases. 
but yeah, absolutely. That should be the number one thing who benefits. That's the primary way of determining who's um, trying to compromise you or how the information is compromised because there's no such thing as, as pure truth ever. Period, yes. ever. And that's, that's, and you know, and this phrase was most, from what I read, it was mostly used during Rome. And why was it? The people, the, the freaking Romans were smart. And they, and like anyone, anytime some person was like, I have the answer. Jupiter has told me right. this or that. It's like, great. Why are you telling me this? Why, why do you think you've been touched by Jupiter? What are you getting? Oh, 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 you want me to hand over 10% of my salary every year? Okay. Right. You know, like it just getting people into that ultra critical mind. It doesn't mean that you're a complete cynic and you dismiss all pieces of new information that are coming to you, but you're constantly, you have that in the back of your, of your hard drive, constantly asking that question. That I think can prevent you from getting trapped in a cult, being trapped in, 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 right. in false information or, or dogma. dogma. Yes. Yes. Any kind of dogma, you know, there's plenty of types of cults, man. Religions are culty, super culty. Right. I had this amazing conversation with um, a good friend of mine and she was telling me about Mormonism and what happens in Mormonism. And I love Mormons. They're the nicest people ever. But just like Christianity, just like Islam, there's spectrum towards the extremes here. And in one particular extreme, you know, they go through all of these really interesting rituals. Um, some of them I think are highly beneficial and some of them I think are kind of culty. And that's just my opinion. But I also recognize that that's because of where I currently am positioned in terms of uh, 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 thinking brain, in terms of it as in terms of my intellect. And so there's a spectrum to this thing. And so what's interesting is when you identify different points, you can triangulate your position relative to those points. Me recognizing parts of Mormonism, that's wild. Me recognizing different forms of cults and different thinking and everything directly teaches me in terms of where I am in a culty nature. Dogmas I've understood until now. Now, here's the thing. I don't necessarily want everybody to become like a Roman cynic and, and because there is also a danger to that as well. So let's just say you're a Roman-esque cynic, right? And you're like, who benefits from this? You know, you guys are just trying to steal my money, right? And let's right. say that dude meets up with some Mormons for a cup of coffee, right? Mm. And he, as soon as he figures out one thing that's false or that he can't prove to be true he dismisses everything and he's like well yeah, you know not- you said you said this one thing that's wrong i'm out of here now he has foregone all of the wisdom that could be in mormonism right that there could be a great deal of wisdom that he could take it's yeah. just a question of carefully splicing the fat out of the steak right because steaks are wonderful but who in their right mind would look at i mean okay sorry i know there's vegans and such but like if you're a meat eater right and you see a juicy london broil or something who mm-hmm. in their right so mind good. is going to who's going to who in their right mind is going to be like well there's some fat around the edges i'm going to throw this whole steak away no you you take your knife and you cut out the fat and then you eat the juicy part of the steak so if we're too cynical then we're going to just throw the whole steak away you know the baby with the the bath water as the expression goes so we also need to teach we need to teach people to be cynical, but we also need to teach them to be open-minded cynical, which is a really difficult balance to strike. And this is where the scientific theory really puts it on the head, right? This is the, the definition of prudence and justice. If you're to put, if you're to draw a straight line in front of you in a sheet of paper, on the very far left is a more progressive liberality of thinking, a kind of Dionysian thought process where it's just total and utter chaos, no structure to it. And then all the way on the right, you put a little more of an Apollonian approach, very highly organized, conservative, 
doesn't really deviate very much. They're both extremes. They're both incorrect. Wisdom, I think, is the exact middle of both, where you're neither expending energy to discover, but you're also not removing the possibility of innovation. And by really threading the needle between those two, keeping, keeping what's provable, but allowing room to be surprised is, I think, what good thinkers do. Um, and, you know, our world right now is really built on the wings, unfortunately. We forgot to bring it home into the body. You know, it, it's very funny. It's really interesting that you're saying this because the last podcast I did with Kenny, we were discussing how atheists tend to be highly intelligent and they tend to be extremely hardworking people. Like, And when I say atheist, I mean like the atheist science types. And we all know these people that are just science, mm -hmm. science, 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 right? Atheist science types. They're hardworking, immensely in, intelligent, but sometimes when you're talking with them, they're too cynical, and it, it kind of, their their mind has been completely closed off to any wisdom that can't be proven outside the scientific process. You know what I mean? That that that's also a frustrating thing because if you're speaking to the scientist, you might be discussing like truths that are not testable by science. I'm not talking about proving God or anything. I'm just talking about like honor your parents or something like that. And it's like, okay, it's not, it's not black and white. It's not clear. Like what if your father is a drunk or whatever, you know, there's definitely a lot of loopholes here, but because it can't be run through the machine of the scientific process, they just dismiss it out of hand. And I feel like they're not as open as they could be to pockets of wisdom. It doesn't mean that they have to just, you know, convert to Catholicism, but maybe they could just be open to some of the, the wisdom that Catholicism has and integrate that into their own lives. And I think that if it doesn't pass the scientific method 100%, they kind of just dismiss it out of hand. And I think that is, there is a danger in that as well, because you're, you're closing off so much of, of, of what humanity was built on by, by just following the science alone. I think, I think we should actually continue this conversation because I think um, something that I mentioned in my intro is, is it possible to, like we, we've discussed why people are curious um, about different things. I'm wondering if it's possible to teach somebody to be curious about something that they're not intrinsically curious about. So I think, I think this will be a two-part episode if that's okay with you. Heck yeah. This is such a great conversation. This is one of our best, I think. So I would love to do this twice. Okay. So we'll resume this next week. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. This concludes the 137th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.